in our series on Titus, we started uh, with the, the first sermon was called Faith That Grows, and it was looking at basically the prologue of Titus, the first four verses, and we talked about how uh, Paul is explaining to Titus that we must have a growing faith, we must have a growing knowledge of God, and that we must have a, a growing godliness, a growing sense of, of godly living in our lives. Last week, we talked about the real thing. For the rest of chapter 1, Paul is encouraging Titus to find good leaders for the churches, uh, find men and women, elders, pastors, leaders who are the real thing, the real deal, that false teaching and false teachers had invaded the churches across Crete, and he needed to silence them and kick them out and replace them with good, solid men and women who were uh, preaching and teaching the truth. And the challenge, of course, to us was that we need to be the real thing. And so that's what we talked about last week. Now in chapter 2, Paul is instructing Titus to teach good doctrine again, but he, he specifically points out five uh, separate groups of people in the church. He says, I want you to teach older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. He mentions five different groups. And so when I started reading that, I was like, the first question that popped into my mind is, who is an older man? And who is an older woman? And how can you decipher that? Basically, I was selfish. I was wondering if I was an old man or a young man, right? And unfortunately, the more I dug into the story, and uh, guess what? I'm an old man. Basically, he, uh, in those days, uh, uh, there's a little bit of debate about what an old man or an older man or an older woman was, but it's pretty much solid that everybody over 40 was considered an older man or an older woman. Some people were trying to push it to 50, but it seems like 40 was probably the age. So unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're over 40 today, that's where you are, and, uh, according to this. And, uh, and if you're under 40, you're the younger man or the younger woman. So these groups, they basically, what he, he, he's, he's pointing out different groups, but basically these groups would have included every believer in every church across Crete. You were either going to be an older man or a younger man or an older woman or a younger woman or a slave. It basically included everybody. And we'll talk about uh, the slave uh, thing in just, just a minute, but... Basically, it was every believer in every church. And good teaching, Paul is saying, it, it's going, it's, it's, it has to include practical instructions on how to live godly. You, you can't just talk about theories and theoretical things and pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's got to include practical instructions on how men and women can, can learn how to live godly. And so he basically is making the point throughout the entire book, good teaching leads to good living. He says it in many ways several times. He says in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, which we're going to get to in a second, but he says that grace has been revealed that offers salvation to all people. And so he talks about grace 
being a teacher. Yes, it's the, it, it, that grace is, is the way we're saved, that we're saved by grace and not by works. But he goes on to say that grace is just more, it's more than that. It, grace is a teacher. Grace is a motivator. Grace is a reason why we should want to live for God. And, and, it, and it helps us in so many more areas. It's a source of strength for us. And, and so he talks a little bit about that. Grace teaches us how to say no, he says. Uh, it teaches us how to say no to certain things, and it teaches us that we should say yes to, to other things. So when his grace is revealed to us, and we receive it through Jesus Christ, it's a game changer for our lives, right? It changes everything. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we operate. It reorganizes our priorities it is an absolute game changer. And so this is why the sermon today has been entitled, Grace Has Been Revealed. The, the, the chapter is really broken up into two big chunks, uh, verses 1 to 10 and then 11 to 15. And uh, we're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to hit uh, all those verses. So first, I'm, I want to just go through a little bit of what he was teaching the older men and older women and younger men, younger women, and etc. So look up, uh, put up for me Titus 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. This is how we start. So he says, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith, be filled with love and patience. So there you go, older men. There's your description. Just keep it up there for a second now. Just, just let that sink into your soul a little bit, all right? So, so the first thing he says is teach the older men to exercise self-control. Or, or the, the word is like a temperate, or the idea is uh, really... I think a good way to understand is moderation is what he's talking about. The older man is to be in control of himself, okay? He doesn't go to excess. He knows when to say no. He's not a slave to his appetites. He, he lives in moderation. He lives with balance. He, he keeps his desires under control, that he's lived long enough and, and, and exercise enough self-control in his life that, he, that he, he can keep himself from doing crazy, zany, outrageous things. He is not a slave to his desire or to his appetites. He says he's worthy, he, he should teach him to be worthy of respect. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, I was thinking about what, what makes a person worthy of respect? fact, is that a question? might be a question that you can uh, talk about at small groups this week, but it speaks to the idea of dignity is really what it's about. That he's saying, older men, you've got to be a person that younger men and and not just younger men, but uh, younger women, older women, everybody can look up to. That you're to be a person worthy of respect, a person that we can look up to, a person who, who younger people want to be like, right? 
right? That your life, your words, your actions, your deeds, you've proven over the course of time that you are faithful, that you are stable, that you, that you are sensible, that, you're, you know, that, that you have it together, that people look at you and say, even if they don't say it, they can look at you, older man, and a younger guy who gets to know you can walk away saying, man, I want to be like him. This is, this is the high calling that he's calling us to, right? This is a man worthy of respect, that his life, his words, his actions prove that he is worthy of this. Older men, he says, you're to live wisely. Live wisely. So the idea here is that you're sensible, right? Uh, there's a lot of crossover in some of these words, but you get the idea that you're living wisely, you're sensible, you're known for good judgment and not, not rash decision. Your, 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 your wisdom is reflected in the choices that you make over the course of your life, that you've lived long enough that you have a track record of people see you and know that you're a man who lives wisely. Nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes, but you're making a lot more right decisions than you're making wrong ones. And you can look back and, 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 and we can track the wise way you've lived and the wise decisions that you've made. You, you have good judgment. He says sound faith. You must have sound faith. It's, it's just really about a healthy faith, a healthy trust in God, that your relationship with Jesus is alive and well, that you're not growing cold or apathetic, but that you're sound and still burning with the desire for Jesus, right? He he talks about uh, uh, being filled with love. Now, men and love, it's a little bit different uh, thing with ladies. Men, in fact, sometimes men even have a hard time, like even saying, I love you, Lord. I, I, I've been to men's conferences, and they don't sing songs with the word love in it because they say it makes men uncomfortable. I think it's a pile of nonsense. You need to get over it. And somebody said, yes right? He loves you and you love him, and that's a good thing, right? But he says, filled with love. I mean, older men, you can't let your love for God or others grow cold. In age and in experience and the ups and downs of life, you know what happens. We grow critical. We grow cynical. We, we, we can grow cold. And he's saying, to keep it in, be filled with love. Basically, he's saying this, older guys, including me, you must resist the temptation to become grumpy old men. Do not become a grumpy old man, but be filled with love. And the lady said, yes, right? Do not. It's nonsense. Don't watch the movies. A grumpy old men are brutal. Avoid... I'm just going to, I just got to keep moving on. Let's avoid the temptation of becoming a grumpy old man who just sits around and complains about everything. You, you don't do yourself any good. You don't do your wife any good. You don't do your church any good. You don't do the kingdom any good. Be filled with love and stay soft on the inside. Say, God, I love you, and I want to keep that fire burning until the day you call me home. So this is a quality, he's saying, older men, Keep it. It's important. It's very important. He says patience. Patience, right? That's a tough one. 
But, but you know what I've learned? The older I get, believe it or not, I am growing in patience. In fact, last eight years have been a massive lesson in patience for me personally. Why can't we just build the church tomorrow? Why do we have to do this, 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 this? Right? Like, but I've understood that patience is, is a deep, important quality, especially in men, that, that needs to be. We, men tend not to have as much patience as ladies, it seems to me. But we've got to, we've got to understand men over 40. We've got to know how to ride out the storms of life and stay strong, stay steady. It's going to be okay, right? We don't overreact. We, don't, we, 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 we just know, we have the experience to know this is going to play out okay. God is with me and this is going to work out. And so we can just patiently stay in faith through it all. It's, it's, uh, patience is a strength. Do you see that? It's a strength to be able to wait. It's a strength to be able to believe while you're waiting. And this is the kind of thing he's calling us to. So older men, we're to live with we're to live uh, as an example. We're to be an inspiration, particularly to younger men. We are to be the, the, the person who provides younger guys with a model of godliness, of mature living, of patience, of love, of sound faith, that, that we are in control of ourselves, that we are a man who is worthy of respect. This is who we're called to be. If you're like 39, you're really close, by the way. I know somebody's out there thinking, I'm not there yet, so I don't have to be that way. You're real close, yeah. Start now, start now. So anyway, uh, so this is who we are. So then uh, look at uh, Titus 2, verses 6 to 8. This is the the flip to the young men now. We're going to do men and then women, so we're going to jump around a little bit. So he says, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself, now Paul is talking to Titus, and you yourself, Titus, you must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. And then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. So Paul says to Titus, encourage the young men to live wisely or to be self-controlled. And I just want to pause because you'll see this. Um, I think it's important to note this word, the same word, it, it appears really very regularly in the book of Titus. Sometimes they translate it live wisely. Sometimes they translate it self-controlled. But it's the same word. Uh, in fact, put up for me Titus 1.8. It's the same word here. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. This is something we already looked at. But he must love what is good. He must, say it with me, he must live wisely. Be just, must live a devout and discipled life. So there's the word there. Then flip to Titus 2.2. It says, teach the older men to exercise. There it is again. Self-control and to live, sorry, and to live wisely. There it is right there. So you see it, you see it again and again through this, uh, through this book. It's translated sometimes live wisely or sometimes self-controlled. But the focus of the word is actually on the mind. It's, he's, he's saying young men, in this, in this uh, point to young men, he's saying uh, you need to be sensible. You need to be clear-headed. You need to use good judgment. You need to be able to 
control yourself. This is what he's saying. Remember now, the island of Crete is in absolute chaos. If you've missed our our, uh, study along the way, Cretans were famous for being liars and gluttons and uh, sexually immoral. And there was absolute pandemonium going on all over the place. And Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete to try to help stabilize and to get the churches back on the right track. So he's saying the young men, he's saying, look, young men, like in Crete, they were out of control, right? They were, they were running around, they were doing all kinds of nonsense. And he's saying, encourage the young men to live wisely or to be self-controlled, to be sensible, clear-headed, have good judgment, to be able to control themselves, right? You know, the Bible is so clear, right? We are transformed by the renewing of our, of our mind, right? Of our mind. So, so he's, he's, he's really, it's, it's a shot to say, young men, be reminded of the battle that goes on in your mind. And, and young men have a battle that goes on in their mind. Titus was in Crete, and the young men there were completely out of control. They weren't living wisely, and they didn't have this right, right? You know, I read this quote this week. The guy said, your mind is like a garden. Uh, He said, uh, if it's not carefully looked after and cultivated, it will quickly become a mess. I thought, wow, that's really true. Your mind is like a garden. If you don't weed it regularly, you'll get overwhelmed right? So this is what was going on here in Crete. And, and he's saying, Paul tells Titus, be, be that encouragement to teach these young men how to live right. But you, Titus, is a young man under 40. That's why Titus is referred to specifically to be an example to the young men. So he's saying, you're a young man, teach them how to live, show them how to live, teach the right things, live the right way, and then when anyone points their finger at you, they'll have nothing to say because you've, you're, you're, you're living and teaching the right thing. So he's saying, you be that man. You be that example to the young men by living right and teaching the truth. Have it in such a way that nobody can speak bad about you. And isn't really that the goal of every young man? Like, it, 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 of every person, really, that... Uh, but particularly, particularly, he's making the point to young men. Because sometimes people, you know, like in church, everybody blames the teenagers, right? Who broke that? <laughs> teenagers. How'd that, how'd that dent get in? Oh, I'm sure it was a teenager. Yeah. We, we say it with this little angst in our voice, right? Like, whatever that, right? But he's saying, young man, live in such a way, you know, that people can't point their finger at you like that. That the only thing they see when they look at you is a quality young person who is growing in the knowledge and the goodness of God. And this, of course, is a great challenge, but this is, this is the challenge that he lays before young men. Uh, I told you that First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus are very, very uh, connected because they're pastoral epistles that Paul was writing these letters to two young pastors, Timothy and to Titus. And he says so much of the same thing in Timothy and Titus. If you read these three books together, it's shocking 
uh, how much he tells them the same thing. Uh, uh, different things, but yet a lot of the same things. He said the same idea to Timothy, uh, put it up for me in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, don't let anyone, again, Timothy's a young pastor, right? Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. But be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. Doesn't that sound like Titus to you? Yeah. This is, this is the point that, he, that he's making to two young pastors. So, women, your turn. Teaching for women, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, says, uh, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. So there's a couple of bombs in there. (laughs) This is the problem when you teach through a book verse by verse. I just can't ignore it. So anyway, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. Older women, you must honor God with how you live. That's what he's saying. You must not slander people. You must not be that, basically he's saying, don't be that gossiper, that mean-spirited person who's always blah, blah, blah behind other people. Don't be a heavy drinker. See, drinking in excess was a massive problem in Crete. They were all, I'm sure, alcoholics. And uh, drinking, it seemed to be like this common thing. Not just drinking, but over-drinking. And it wasn't just the men who were doing it, right? Uh, Clearly, it wasn't just the men who were doing it. Uh, In fact, maybe it was the men who was driving the women to do the drinking. I don't know, but it could be. But, But... the point is, is don't be a heavy drinker. That's the point. Paul says that um, the perfect teachers, the perfect teachers for young women are the older, stable women, right? So they understand better than anybody what a younger woman is going through because they've been through it themselves. He says they should help the younger women love their husbands and to love their children. So, It seems such a basic thing, isn't it? When I read that, I went, teach a woman how to love her husband and their children? Why do you even have to say that, you know? But then the more I thought about it, I thought, no, actually, a woman with some experience knows it's not always easy to love your husband. Shh. We'll just smile together. And sometimes it's not, not easy to love your kids when they're driving you insane. Yeah. So I went, no, that actually does make sense. Yeah. Um, she says, teach, uh, have the older uh, women teach the younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their children. And some, I, I mean, so a wife of, of experience knows that these things are not always easy. There's days that, that are difficult. And you have to remember, too, that some women here are coming to faith in Jesus, and now they're having to go back home and to deal with an unbelieving husband, right, who's a drunkard, who's sexually immoral, 
who's running around. He's just a nasty guy. And so this, this was very difficult for uh, uh, just a young woman who's new in the faith, who's married and who has a husband and children who are completely out of control. And uh, it's a tricky thing to handle. And so he's saying, let the older women help. They know better than you how to teach the younger women. So loving your children, I was thinking, he's sort of referring here to, when you dig into it, it, it's finding that balance, and and this is good advice for the 21st century, of finding, we all love our kids, right? But we have to find this balance between these two extremes of giving them everything they want or disciplining them too harshly. And this is what he's saying. You've got to teach the young women to find that balance of how to love their husband right how to love their children properly. Like young moms may need help with this, that they they may let their kids run wild, that there's no discipline, there's no control. They, They love them so much that they allow them to do anything they want in the name of love, right? And and he's saying that's not really a great way to love your kids. Kids need parameters. They need discipline. You, just because he wants ice cream for, di- for dinner every night doesn't mean you should give it to him, right? And so he's saying, teach the younger women how to love their kids right, how to find that balance between, b- between being too permissive but, but then uh, not too strict either and try to help them find that. And, and uh, that can be a challenge for a young woman with, young kids who's doing this for the first time. So older women are to teach younger women to live wisely and to be pure, and I think you get that. Again, sexual corruption is all over the island of Crete, uh, and, and he's saying, look, just because other people are doing it doesn't mean you should too. This is, the, have, you, have you seen, uh, have you heard that kind of logic, you know, uh, we can blame teenagers, but I can't blame teenagers. If you older people, well, everybody does it. Oh, well, then it's okay. No, it's not okay. You don't do it just because a lot of people do it. You know, he's saying just because a lot of women are running around being unfaithful to their husbands, just because a lot of husbands are running around being unfaithful to their wives, it's not right for you to do it. And older women need to teach the younger women that truth. So he's saying, stay busy, do good, work in your home, and yes, submit to your husband's leadership. I can't get into that too much, because that's a whole kettle of fish, but that's a good topic. But if you look at, if you look back to see what Paul said, one of the greatest explanations he gives is in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about, you know, that passage where he says, uh, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church, and, and, and on and on and on. But the verse that people seem to miss uh, in that whole passage is the verse that actually begins that whole discussion. And he says this. He says, mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I believe it's Ephesians 5.21. Just saying that off the top of my head, but I think it's 5.21. That starts that whole discussion. And what he's saying is this, there is submission and there is mutual submission and everyone who's in a good marriage knows that's true, right? So how does a husband, a husband submits to his wife by loving her, 
by caring for her, by giving himself up for her as Christ loves the church, so you love her, that you want her best in mind, that you are a contributor, that you do everything you can to to make her well and to give her joy and to give her stability and strength and confidence, to let her grow into the woman that she wants to become and that God wants her to become. This is a good husband. And, and, and that means that you, this, this whole sub, mutual submitting thing is a guy submits that way by he, he, he's saying, I'm, I'm putting you in front of me, right? And yes, there is structure. He's saying, and women, you submit by allowing your husband to lead. Let him lead and respect him, help him, encourage him. Let him become the leader that he can be. And when a husband is leading a home and mutually submitting to his wife and loving her, you have the recipe for a wonderful life together. And somebody said, yes, this is just true. And so people get hung up on on this, and I, I don't think it's really as drastic as people make it out to be. But maybe that's a good sermon in relationships. Oh, my. I'd ha- okay, but that's a good one. That is a good one. Uh, and I've I, I got to keep going, but it's important. It's important that we, we understand the balance there. So Titus, by the way, is not asked to instruct the younger women. I want you to note that. Titus is a young man, right? Him instructing younger women, that's probably not a good idea, right? So he's saying, look, t- teach the older women, encourage the older women, good older women, not just any older woman, the good older stable women who are loving and who are stable and who are not heavy drinkers, who are pure and on and on and on. Get those women to help the younger women and everybody will benefit and the church will be stronger for it. So it was a job that was given to the older ladies to do. So he says, teaching for slaves, um, 9 and 10, put that up for me. He says, so now we've done older men, younger men, older women, young, uh, younger women. Now the last group he talks about is slaves. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. So when we talk about slaves, we... We, we, uh, uh, we look back like into the 1800s when uh, people were going to Africa and, and, and bringing people over and this whole slave thing and all. And of course, it was horrible and not right. But understand, back in these days, things were different. It wasn't quite that way. And so kind of try to wrap your head around this. The whole Roman world was full of slaves, full of slaves. In fact, they said the city of Rome was about one-third slaves, one-third. So uh, there was estimated to be over 50 million slaves across the Roman Empire. And people were becoming slaves for a million different reasons, right? Uh, You know that Rome was a conquest nation, so they were going into other nations and, and defeating people and taking territory. And so they were gathering up hundreds and thousands, millions of slaves They were, everybody that was taken in as a prisoner of war was a slave. So if they come and they invade Stouffville, guess what happens? We're all slaves, right? So this is is what was going on. 
So they were taken as prisoners of war. Sometimes you would become a slave as a punishment for a crime. Uh, Sometimes people were put into slavery because of debt. And you'll see that in the Bible, right? That if you can't pay your debt, you have to become a slave to the guy that you owe and you have to work it off, right? So some people were like that. Actually, there was even children who were being sold into slavery by their parents because they needed the cash. So there was a myriad of reasons why people were becoming slaves and why why you see slaves talked about on and off throughout the New Testament is because there was millions of them. And understand this, too. This is important to understand. Slaves did all kinds of jobs, not just manual labor. They weren't just, they weren't just uh, you know, like slaving out in some field. You saw in the Roman Empire, slaves were teachers. They were doctors. They were craftsmen. They were managers. They were all kinds of people. Imagine all the, the ability and talents here in this room. They invade. We're all slaves. Well, I'm a slave now, but I'm a pastor. You know, you're a slave, but you're a doctor. You're a slave, you're a lawyer. You're a slave, now you're a plumber, right? Like, we all, this is what was going on. So they were uh, much more than just these, these menial, manual labor type things that were, that were being mistreated. And yes, some slaves in the Roman Empire were treated harshly, but actually a lot were not because there, there was so many of them and they were bringing skills into the Roman Empire and a lot of times they were treated actually uh, quite well. Um, in, the, in the church, slaves were treated actually as equals with everybody else, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, imagine the dynamic, right? So you have a slave, you treat this slave well, let's, let's say, and, but it's still a slave who works for you. And then Sunday rolls around and you come to church. Well, that's, you can't tell that slave what to do. Everybody's on level ground at the cross, right? And so slaves were treated as equal in the church. And I wondered just how that dynamic would play out between people as they would gather for worship. But that's just my mind wondering about that. But uh, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, it gives you kind of a little nugget. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you, but as slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each of us for the good we do, whether we're slaves or free. And now he, now he flips it and says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember that you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So he, he doesn't uh, technically condemn slavery, but it's, it's, he, he sets parameters that uh, eventually uh, slavery came to an end by people looking at the teachings of Paul saying, these people should be treated properly, and everybody is equal at the cross, and this is wrong and immoral. And so we finally broke free from that. But what do these verses have to do with us? I'm so glad you asked because I was thinking about that too. And I was thinking this. 
What about how we conduct ourselves at work? What about... Now, I, I get, of course, we're not, we're not slaves. We're not slaves. I get that. But the principles of conduct at work, I believe they still apply. Like, show respect to your superior. Don't talk back. Don't steal. Don't show yourself to be trustworthy. Be a good worker. Work with enthusiasm. Do a good job even when you're not being watched. Hmm? Think those things can apply to us as well. So, you know, basically the bottom line is this. He's saying to slaves, saying to all of us, right? If we claim to have been transformed by Jesus, then it's got to show at work too, right? It's got to show at work too. If it's real, it should show up there too. So he talks about the slaves. Now, now we're going to wrap up with the end. Titus 11 to 14, Titus 2, 11 to 14. This is now where it turns and he talks about grace. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the end of this chapter answers the question, okay, of why we should live this way. So I'm an older man. Why should I live like this? with all the instructions that he gave. If I'm an older woman, why should I do all the things that he's asking me to do? If I'm a younger man, why? If I'm a younger woman, why should I be that way? If I'm a slave, why should I do that? Why should I live like that? This is this the end of the chapter. He answers the question, why? Because of God's grace. This is what he says. God's grace has been revealed it's, it's been offered to us. It, 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 it brings salvation to everybody who receives it. That is, grace knows no barriers. It recognizes no distinctions. It brings salvation across the board to young and old, to rich and poor, to male and female, to slave and free, to Jew and Gentile. Grace is this powerful force in our lives that it teaches us. Did you ever talk or think that grace is a teacher, but it is. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godly things. It, it is, yes, it, it is this undeserved favor that has been given freely to us. It is by God's grace and not by works that we have eternal life. But Jesus paid this price we could never pay. And when we understand the grace that's been given to us, it is a teacher, it is a motivator, it is a powerful source in our lives that compel us to serve Him better. It drives us to make whatever changes are necessary in our lives. The more you grasp how great His grace is, the more you want to serve Him the more you want to please Him, the more you want to live for Him. Because you get a deeper understanding of all that He's done for you. Amen? Amen. He's saying, grasp it. Get it. Grace 
has been revealed. And when you get it, when you see it, when you understand it, it is a teacher and a motivator and a powerful force, a source of strength for you to stand and say, I will love you, God. I will serve you, God, because you first loved me. You are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of my service. You are worthy of my money. You are worthy of my talents because of the grace that I have received, right? We can never pay it back. And he doesn't call us to pay it back. It's not like that. But it is this motivator that wants us. He gave us so much and has so much in store for us yet to come that how could I not serve him? How could I not love him? How could I not do what he wants me to do, right? What does John say? If you, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And when we, when we get that, when we understand his grace, it motivates us to serve him better. Look at Titus 2.12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, just keep that there just for a second. See, God helps us to live, he says, self-controlled. Again, this word is popping up, upright and godly lives, right? Three things. And when I started looking at those, those three words, it seemed to me that they were looking in different directions. And let me explain. This is, this is, this is uh, what I was thinking. That self-control is a reference to ourselves, right? That living upright, living righteous, living proper is, is something that we are to others. It's something that others notice and see about us. And, and godliness, living, living a godly life in this, in this world is a life that pleases God. So I was thinking, grace teaches us to say no, but it also teaches us to look in at ourselves, self-control. It teaches us to look out at others, and, and, it, and it also teaches us to look up. It teaches us to look up. So what you see is there's actually nothing that's unbalanced about a life filled with grace. Nothing. There's nothing unbalanced about it. It teaches us and helps us to look at ourselves. It teaches us and helps us to look at others. And it teaches and helps us to look at God in a proper way. In, out, and up. That's how I thought of that. And that's helpful. You can take it. That's for free. But, um, but that's what I was thinking about that. There's nothing unbalanced about the life that grace enables us to live. And why I'm, I'm saying that again is because people, people say, you know, you're whatever, heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good or whatever, and all this nonsense about uh, extreme and, and do, doing this, and Christians are, you know, sheltered, or Christians don't, you know, this or that, and all these things. This is not the life of grace. It just hit me again this week. The life of grace, if lived out properly, is actually very well balanced. It helps me to look at myself properly. It helps me to look at others properly. And it helps me to look at God properly. And, and that is a life that makes a difference. That's a life that, 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 that can order change. So grace is something that brings salvation. Yes, of course. But it's a teacher and it's a motivator. 
And when we understand the gift of grace that's been revealed to us, it's, it changes us. It just changes us. And isn't it amazing that uh, I was going to say it was good planning, but that would be a lie. <laughs> that when we're talking about grace, uh, as we're going to celebrate communion at the end of the service today, that's just good timing by the Spirit of God. Look at Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So Paul says grace saves us, but it teaches us and motivates us how to live and how to live well while we wait for the blessed hope that will come. He said, see, I heard someone once say the best is yet to come. That that's true. The best is yet to come. Put up these and then we'll wrap up. Philippians chapter three. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And uh, Revelation chapter 21 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. He's a God who does not lie. Amen? And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The best is yet to come, my friends. The best is yet to come. So he says, grace saves us, teaches us, and it gives us hope and strength while we wait for the blessed hope. You ever heard somebody say, how'd you make it through that difficult time? God gave me the grace to make it through, right? He gives you its strength. It's so many things. It's powerful, right? So listen, this new way of life, Paul is saying to to Titus, teach them this new way of life. We do this not out of legalism, not to gain salvation. We do it because we understand the grace of God and it is motivating us to love him. It is teaching us to love him. It is in compelling us to become the better version of ourselves. He's saying, teach them, this is the new normal. This is who we are in Christ. This is how young men, old men, younger women, older women, slaves, anybody, anybody, slave or free, Jew, Gentile, we have to live like this. This is our new normal. His grace has been revealed and it will keep us until the day that the blessed hope arrives. His grace, His grace has been revealed. Understand it today and receive it today for it is a powerful, life-changing thing the more we understand it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.